Monday, July 6th. We are recording this on the atmospheric hangover that is July 5th with deplorable air quality, um, just hanging over the city on the 4th of July from quite a show. I had quite a show on my street. Did you? It was, I think, one of the best in, in years. If ever. Yeah. It sounded pretty good. I didn't see many fireworks, but, uh, but God, I could hear them. I loved the, dr- the like now ubiquitous drone videos from the day after that you get to mm-hmm. see all the fireworks going off. Uh, yeah, I, I think it was louder this year than in previous years. I've enjoyed across the country, people finding a balance between their new understanding of the effects of police violence and like wanting the police to be defunded, but also wanting anyone who makes any noise with fireworks to be executed (laughs) to the point that in a lot of places they decided that it must be the police setting off those fireworks. I enjoyed some of the mental gymnastics. Well, and also the delicate path to tread. (laughs) I, I appreciate it too. The data that came out in the LA Times, there was a story that was like, fireworks complaints are up, but only one person has been cited <laughs> this whole year. Like, just one. <laughs> I'm like, and like those stories have like the, they're like, I don't know, the, this is what it would be like if there were, were no police or whatever. But is it, isn't that normal? I don't think I ever hear about people getting cited for fireworks. It's actually frequently something everyone complains about the cops not doing i don't know it didn't seem like that was out of the out of the ordinary to me i just want to know what that one person did wrong to actually get cited that, that yeah that. <laughs> just that one guy <laughs> seriously well i it's nice to be back i am disappointed to find that i was gone for a week and i've returned to see that all of our local institutions are still I think Scott referred to it last week as a sideways shit show. But I think that is there's kind of like an like a theme to everything we're going to talk about this week, which is these big city institutions like still in upheaval, but some maybe policy changes coming out of it, things that would have been nice if they had just done them in the first place without right. this like exorcism having to happen. But like, you know, like a gradual path to results, I think we're seeing in a lot of different categories. Do we want to just get right into it? Yeah, let's do it. Let's start with the COVID-19 situation, the the status of the outbreak in Los Angeles. It is very bad. Los Angeles continues to be cited in national coverage as a hotspot, primarily for case growth, which in the past was tracking testing growth, but is not anymore. Our, our our percentage of positive tests is going up. The number of cases easily eclipses uh, 2,000 a day on most days. And most scarily, hospitalizations are rising to the point that county health officials say that we could run out of hospital and ICU beds in July within the next couple of weeks to give you sort of an illustration of how quickly hospitalizations have grown. We had 1,288 hospitalizations on June 16th. That's the number of people that were in the hospital on that day. And last Thursday, 
there were 1,893 people in the hospital. That's 46% growth in only a couple of weeks. Uh, and it's getting very close to our peak hospitalizations during the pandemic, uh, 1,959 on May 1st. We actually may have passed that number already, but we don't know yeah. because the county uh, health department is taking the long weekend off. They are not reporting any new numbers uh, since Friday. So we don't actually know the status. I've heard just like anecdotal reports of, of hospitals being full and things like that. But they, they say that they're, I mean, do, do we have any more insight on this beyond like they say they're changing their counting process, their metrics. Do we know anything about what that means? Yeah, we, we don't know. I don't, I don't think I've seen anything about, what they're changing. It could be something about what we've talked about before about reporting, changing the reporting based on when the test was taken or something mm -hmm. like that. But I, yeah, a week ago or a week or so ago, they changed the testing interface, like the mm -hmm. client you use to do your test online. So perhaps this is related to that. Yeah. Well, something's wrong with how they get the numbers because they're too high. <laughs> Something yeah. has to be done. <laughs> I mean, it, I it's also interesting that. too. There, there's been widespread discontinuity between the numbers reported between the county, which are then used by Mayor Garcetti in his biweekly addresses, and the numbers that are going into the state count. Now, Mayor mm -hmm. Garcetti has been saying repeatedly, he's been asked this question several times by reporters from a number of different organs, but he has said that the county's numbers should, are the ones that we should be trusting and relying on. So clearly, I don't know. The, the, clearly something is changing because the numbers are not actually reflecting in, in the view of public health officials what is actually happening. So whatever comes out of that, though, I, I imagine it will not materially affect what we are talking about right now, which is we are running out of space again. Mm -hmm. Something else that happened this past week was Garcetti was asked about bringing back, potentially bringing back the USNS Mercy. Uh, a, a reporter asked him about that, and he said that he had not started thinking about it. I think it's it's worth mm. noting, though, Hayes, that what, what you're talking about, our recent maximum in terms of number of, of hospitalizations, happened at a time when we had a lot more hospital rooms available. Mm -hmm. We had a lot more, or we didn't have a lot more. We had uh, a few hundred more hospitalizations, but there were a lot more total beds because we had the Mercy, because we had the the Surge Hospital at St. Vincent. But I'm not sure that any of those resources are currently available now. Nobody knows. I just assume in St. Vincent, it's like Silent Hill in there now. It's, it's like, there's they, you go in there, it's a I walked first by it the other day. Shooter. Yeah, <laughs> it's like there's... There's activity there. I don't think it doesn't look like it's there's activity tons inside. of people, but there was yeah, there was more people there the than shadow the rushing again. by the <laughs> the window. <laughs> it takes a long time to turn those those big ships around. If they're if we're gonna bring the mercy back, they gotta start they should probably start turning the wheel now. I was shocked that Garcetti said that he had not been thinking about that, and I kind of think that he might be lying like I, it, it's a big like you know oh I haven't thought about that giant ship that we brought <laughs> in here <laughs> other thing that happened this week we had uh, Governor Newsom come in and tell us again that we were doing New COVID rules. wrong right this is Alyssa's segment <laughs> <laughs> 
New rules. Bump, bump, bump. <laughs> Start the clock. Start the clock. Yeah, I like. We have so and this is like the you know the crisis is rising cases and hospitalizations, but now a little policy change designed to alleviate the situation. The best, the only allegory I can come up with for this process is like your shirt is on fire, and now this policy change is re- cutting one of your sleeves off. <laughs> <laughs> well, as they like to call it. Uh, toggle back. I really like that toggle terminology. Back. So we're yeah. we're toggling back in in these counties right now. To I think how many? It's 19, 19 counties, which is nineteen a counties, but the big ones. Yeah, the 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 the, the, hop, the heavily populated ones. So it's a significant. It affects a significant amount of people. And we had I think Eater was the first to report. You know, we get this like you hear like the whispers, and then like. Newsom gets up and talks and then later like Garcetti has a special show and they they mm-hmm. do this like we've talked extensively same thing with the bars that we had last week that was so great it was just yeah. like this you know we've talked four, we know this is the best. four days apart right it yeah was so like, we had that's right we had the bars it was basically like yeah bookending the weekend like hope you had a great last fling <laughs> eating in <laughs> restaurants because it's over but again yeah. would they're gonna keep the they're going to keep the outdoor dining and we'll talk about that in a second. But but just to point out, too, like this is a, a significant change for restaurants that had spent a lot of money and a lot of time to train their employees on these new procedures, which were sprung on them. And, you know, at the last minute, basically a couple of weeks ago, as we were talking about when the a couple of weeks happened. ago, so this was back on May 29th. Yeah. So they've oh, wow. now See. been open for indoor dining for over a month. OK, so, wow. yeah, I have no concept of time. I should note that. But there was a, a story in the in the L.A. Times about how the folks at, at Gorilla Tacos had spent forty thousand dollars on like plexiglass on like all the little procedures to make sure that they could dine mm-hmm. in. They had mm-hmm. just reopened and then they got this, you know, just handed down. And you know, just when they were about to start, just when they start to felt com- feel comfortable serving at the same time. You have, once again, they said they're the public health um, officials from the, the county are going out and checking in on restaurants and they're half, half of them are not in compliance. Again, like this just keeps happening. It's their, the rate of co- compliance is just continues to be really bad. And something else that the mayor mentioned the night, that night when he made his announcement that they were closing is that we have these OSHA strike teams that are ready to go and shut restaurants down if they're not treating workers the right way. Where were those in the beginning? Like, where are those people like that we all of a sudden have to like deal with this who weren't there to actually be making sure that places were safe before they opened? So that's what that's what's going to replace the LAPD, the, the OSHA <laughs> I'll take, I'll elite take squad. Yes, OSHA. I'll take it. OSHA. OSHA. Do we know? Squad. Is that California OSHA or is that federal? That's a good question. I don't. I, I was assuming it was state, but I guess I don't. I don't actually know. Yeah, they're Mercs. They're international Mercs. I mean, but this <laughs> should, but this should be. This should have been what Eric we had. Prince's hit squad <laughs> coming to put up checklists for whether or not <laughs> <laughs> you have a sneeze guard. They're like, look at this sign we made. But yeah, I think like having this from the beginning, I think could have saved a lot of trouble and potentially lives. I don't know. Like it just seems like we're we're kind of 
why, why it's no surprise that we're toggling back because we never, it was set up to fail in the first place. And I also yeah. want to note this week that almost every major restaurant critic ran a story like Bill Addison from the LA Times locally wrote one about going to eat at Mastro's in Beverly Hills and just about how how they felt that it is not a safe situation, not for them, but for the people who were serving them. And I want to read right. just a, a line from Ryan Sutton, who's the critic at Eater in New York, who got was sick with COVID and was like, I'm still not going out to eat. The notion of being in a place where underpaid staffers are financially compelled to interact with unscreened and unprotected patrons seeking leisure is unacceptable to me on a very basic human level. And I think that really gets to it. Like regardless of your inside, your outside, whatever you're doing, you are forcing people who make little, very little money in many cases to serve people who are bored and they want to get out of their house. And that's what's really messed up about the current situation that we find ourselves in. Uh, yeah, I mean, not doing it at all, as uh, most other cities, that's the path they chose to take, was looking like a smarter and smarter option. I see my friends in New York seeing that like de Blasio was planning on opening indoor dining, I think, on July 6th. And people replying like, like murderer, go to prison. (laughs) How dare you? And then I feel like I think about how we have lived with indoor dining for a month. That was it was announced indoor outdoor dining at the exact same time. Like you were saying, Alyssa, with like a couple hours notice, San Francisco still has not opened it up. I don't know what makes us different here i don't know what it is about the the restaurant business association that appears to have so much power but ultimately you look back on it like you're saying Alyssa, this did no one any favors it didn't do employees any favors it fucked up their ability to get unemployment insurance by compelling them to giving them the option to go back to work with businesses they invested money in this and then that money has now completely gone to waste because they're shut down again and I mean, I think when you look at what happened, it's pretty obvious. Like you look at the the hospitalization numbers and the case numbers from right before they opened. We had this very, very brief period of leveling off, like two days, and they seized on it. Yeah, to, to, look, it's it's a mission accomplished banner. Yes. there is no difference between uh, yeah. Bush on the the aircraft carrier and. <laughs> L.A. Al Fresco. And yeah, him standing at the South L.A. Cafe Al Fresco. Yes. Yes. So, I I mean, this was really cavalier, like the way that L.A. went about reopening L.A. County and L.A. City went about reopening various parts of the economy. It was extremely cavalier from the start before the George Floyd protests began on a really massive scale here, we were already engaging in what was at the time suspected to be a brash decision that we were just going to push ahead, reopening things, allowing more businesses to reopen, forcing more employees to go back to work, particularly in retail and restaurant sectors. These were decisions that were made by primarily the County Board of Supervisors, currently headed by Catherine Barger and Mayor Garcetti. And they should own a lot of the blame for that. But the like everything that they have been saying is, we did this in as cautious a way as possible. 
And I feel like the there's no breaking through this wall of denial where it's mm-hmm. like the conversation that they want to have is if we are reopening the vast majority of our economy, are we doing it as safely and smartly as possible when everyone else is saying we should not have reopened the economy? There's not a smart and safe way to do this at this point in time. And like you're saying, Hayes, the amount of so when when Garcetti gets up and talks to the press, talks to Angelinos and is saying that his office and city government and county government more generally have uh, listened to Gavin Newsom at every yeah. point along the way, and that they have taken state guidelines and then applied data. Like you were saying, what they've done is take an incredibly small sample of data, a couple of days in some cases, or even less, and then used that to say, it's a green light, go. Mm-hmm. And and we're just going to press ahead and we're going to see what happens. And everybody follow these rules. We don't anticipate having the wherewithal to actually enforce the rules that we're changing right now, but it's just a total free-for-all, and hopefully that will work out for the best. Now we're seeing, of course, probably as expected for many of our listeners, that that's not the case. And people are really directly endangered by these actions. There's been They're no, already dead, some of them. Yeah. There's been no accountability. Like, and Worse than that. Worse than that. They say, they do say, like you're saying, Scott, we did this in the safest way possible, but they say you flunked yeah. you yeah. failed us yeah right. Sheila Kuehl went on she KCRW this week and yeah. said that exact thing she said you flunked by not going to bars and getting loaded without breathing on each other the way we yeah. wanted you to yep <laughs> and I'm also struck by the lockstep of our local officials we've got 15 city council members and not a single one that I know of has spoken up and said hey this was stupid and like we have to put the brakes on this right like uh uh, board of supervisors they disagree internally on a lot more stuff not none of them that i've seen has said like this like this is haphazard we need to follow the model of other places like this is getting out of control janice han was the lone representative on the supervisor supervisorial board representing the fourth district to actually indicate publicly that she had second thoughts about how the reopening took place. Hmm. So the only I mean actually uh, I think it was her and Hilda Solis were kind of like they gave pretty much like wishy-washy statements of possibly we didn't go about this in the best way and I think you could remove the question tone from that <laughs> and <laughs> turn that into a declarative statement. So they were the only two who who gave any sort of statement to the effect that there had been mistakes that they personally made and not that this was a good plan, but, you know, this is not a best laid plans of mice and men sort of situation. This is like you literally threw shit at the wall and mm-hmm. we're hoping that it would somehow not make your wall look like it had shit on it. There was, there was no like real great thought to talk behind about this. The context of restaurants too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're good at analogies in this. In We're this so good. Alyssa, we have a game. We have a game. That's related to this. Yeah. And I, what, this is the other thing that struck me is again, we, we talking about, we're talking about al fresco, which is just 
always too fun not to bring up in every show. But, you know, we have had this big announcement that we talked about last week where they had this splashy. I, I for one, have not seen a true alfresco in the wild. If you have seen one, if anyone listening knows of an alfresco in the Mm -hmm. wild, I want you to send me a picture because all I've seen is people taking over their parking lots, which I don't count, and people taking over sidewalks, which are just getting in the way of people trying to use those sidewalks and they're being done very irresponsibly. I have seen no parking spaces taken over. Besides You're talking the about using ones. the part of the street that they call the flex zone. Yeah. <laughs> and you're saying that you've seen no flexing. I've seen no right? flexing. I've seen no flexing. I just want somebody to send it to me. I will give you like a gift certificate to the indoor dining experience of your choice if you send me one. But I have not seen this being been deployed in a way that I think makes it still safe because what I see is people put some tables on the sidewalk and you still have to walk through them to use the sidewalk and it doesn't create any distance at all. It just puts them outside. What I thought was interesting this week too was a lot of the kind of what you were just talking about, this shaming of the people instead of the policy. And also at the same time saying that we're doing things, but the mayor himself is not going to participate in those things for the reasons that we talked about before. So I have, I have four quotes from him and I, I want you to tell me if it's something that he actually said this week, if you could believe it or not. And I don't know what we call this segment. Were these all in the Garcetti show or in different, in different contexts? Some of them were at press conferences. And so this, I guess the segment is like, did he really say that? Maybe. Did he really say that? (laughs) Okay. You have to ask that after every question. (laughs) Outdoor spaces properly spaced are very safe. That's not the place where you're probably going to get an infection. We don't discourage people from dining out, but it's great to be at home with a great meal from a local restaurant that you pick up. For our restaurants, I personally will be ordering in. (laughs) Did he say that? (laughs) I saw that one. Yes, he did really say that. He did. So after all of this, after a week of telling us, I personally will be ordering in. It's perfectly wow. safe. It's so safe, in fact, that I want to leave as much space as possible for you all to participate in it. Oh, maybe Please that's enjoy. Manja, manja. <laughs> I will be <laughs> barricading myself in my home. So again, like you've just undone all the like effort you made to make it seem like it was something you should do by saying, yeah, not, not for me. It's not for me. All right. So he did say that. You're right. At uh, And he does at eat at restaurants. Scott saw him at Petit Trois once. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's true. They'd have a parking lot they could use, I guess. I haven't seen them doing that. Um, that was a, a quote from reported by Dakota Smith that was at a press conference for the latest bridge home opening uh, during the questions, by the way. So I love that whenever they go like these press conferences where they really want to celebrate something, they're like, hey, what all these people are dying. Do you have any thoughts on, on that? <laughs> yeah, honestly, uh, universally, the question and answer segment has provided the only real worthwhile yes. clips from yes. any of these. All right. People are asking me about going back to school in August. That's a decision that's not just up to our school districts. It's also up to each one of us. If we are able to dial back infections, we can see our schools open up in the fall. But if we don't keep protecting our loved ones and our families, schools may not be able to reopen. Did he say that? He said that. And also, (laughs) I, I think that everybody's reaction to that was kind of like, 
we know that schools might not be yeah. able to reopen. But also, like, <laughs> blaming the parents of LAUSD children who are the right. same people that you are likely ordering back to restaurants to work at jobs or, or maybe unemployed, you know, 88% of... Uh, or seventy five percent of of uh, the school district are is on a, a free lunch program. Like, who are you? Yeah. Who are you like shaming here in this statement by saying you better get home and take care of your family, or else I'm not going to open the schools for you in August. I like that one too, just because he opens it by saying it's not just a decision. Like the school district has been saying we can't open on time. We don't have enough money. We don't have a plan. At all of these things. And he's like, this isn't just up to the school district. Like, it's it's something that I can also blame you for, yes. listener. Yes. Another example of, like, the dual focus. This is the real toggle between the, like, larger forces, the governor, things that are, like, completely out of our control, and then zooming past his own decision-making power to you, the irresponsible <laughs> yes. citizen. Yes. All right. We can serve our country, help us make it stronger, hold fast to those cherished rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and make them real for everybody. We can do that by avoiding gatherings, by wearing a face covering, by physically distancing, washing our hands, and getting tested. Did he say that? No. He did say that. That was the 4th he of did? July. <laughs> that was the 4th of July That address. was the 4th of July speech? Yes. And by the way... As soon as I saw that message, I logged on to the city's testing site and there are no testing spots available. He keeps getting <laughs> asked about this one. And do either of you want to hazard a guess for how he makes this the listener's fault when he's asked about the the lack of testing appointments? Well, it definitely wasn't punishment for the protests as one a 30, journalist was 30 percent reporting out 30 percent day of cancellation rate that really oh, yeah, yeah he has said that before yeah and he and then he also said like if you if you could just try to drive up and like get a get a slot maybe if you know if because there are cancellations but then there's there were reports of four hour car waits this week for through the testing sites yeah so he said keep Keep checking throughout the day because yeah. the reason why we have so few appointments available is because people schedule appointments and then you flakes don't go. You testing flakes. Yeah. <laughs> the flaky city. God. All right. Last one. If people want to do bad, I'm convinced there's no way that you can stop them, but they should be prepared to pay the price. Certainly I'm not responsible for this, but all of us have responsibility to root it out. Did he say that? I know he said this one. Yeah, it's not related to COVID. But it was too good. Not to <laughs> Personally, I'm not responsible for this is a, an exact quote for uh, what Garcetti's response to a question about whether or not he should have done a better job vetting Ray Chan or if as mayor of the nation's second largest city, he should have been somehow aware uh, that the planning process had been completely taken over by a bribery ring. And his response was, certainly I'm not responsible for this. <laughs> All right, that's my game. I thank you for, for playing along. And that was actually reported by Claudia Pasciuta. That was a question asked at one of the Garcetti shows by her. And that question was about specifically Ray Chan, who he promoted to deputy mayor? I mean, I think it was about the corruption right. conversation. Yeah. That rocks. 
Yeah, but 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 his his response to Ray Chan is is no, he's not responsible. No, we not. we talked a little bit about it last week. His whole theme was everybody told me he was a good guy. Businesses really like him for some reason, and that should be good enough. Yeah, he was like Mister like Mister Red Tape Scissors. Like that was his <laughs> reputation. How could that have possibly <laughs> gone wrong? Yeah, wow. And, I mean, and. Just to note, I mean, the LA Times had a story this past week that somebody who was working in city government under Ray Chan is in the early stages of probably suing the city because he believes he was forced out for trying to point out various acts of official wrongdoing, which is extremely believable. I, mm-hmm. I mean, this is, you know, Garcetti can say all 40,000 people who work for the city of LA are not guilty of this, but certainly I'm not responsible is not going to win you many friends in that argument. The buck stops way over there. You have to like (laughs) commute to the buck. You can't see. Yeah. You can't see where the buck stops from here. (laughs) Speaking of the continued unraveling of powerful elected officials in Los Angeles, somebody continues to feel like he's not getting enough attention in this era where everyone is focusing on the mayor and the LAPD, uh, a guy who used to feature in every one of our episodes for put together a, a, a hitting streak of probably like 30 episodes in a row uh, is making noise. Who is it, Scott? That would be our sheriff, Alex Villanueva, the intrepid lone law enforcement official standing up to other elected officials and telling them that he will not be defunded quietly. In fact, he went on Sean Hannity's show this week. Yes, with guest host Jason Chaffetz. (laughs) Which was terrible. I saw his face and I was like, I kind of recognize this face and I know that I don't like it, but I can't remember exactly why. Uh, The segment was very, very, it was very like boring, standard, Fox News trash, like exactly what you would expect. They they spent a fair amount of time talking about the Capitol Hill organized protest in Seattle. And specifically, Alex Villanueva was on there because he is on a sort of world tour slash total meltdown mm-hmm. about what he says is the Board of Supervisors' decision to defund his department to the tune of $145 million on a $3.5 billion baseline. The county in the past several weeks has been discussing and officially voted for this last week their reduction, their reduced revised budget to account for the lost revenue that they expect due to covid The sheriff's department did not come out unscathed in that, but uh, a defunding, obviously, this is not. Villanueva, though, has been basically living in Mark Ridley Thomas's mentions online and (laughs) (laughs) like attacking various supervisors for their statements about both the protests and for their for their decision to reduce the sheriff's budget along with other county uh, departments. 
And he really doesn't like county CEO Sachi Hamai, who was the interim county CEO for a while and has now taken over that job full time, who he accused of like when he was on the the Hannity show, Villanueva was saying that the, the chief executive had ordered him to like cut all of these programs like recidiv- anti-recidivism programs and major crimes investigation and things that you're like, oh, that's weird. Why would the CEO do that? And then they had a press conference for the county this week where she said, no, those were actually Villanueva's suggestions for the things that he would personally cut if they didn't do what he wanted. So he was basically giving them an ultimatum, uh, which sounds a lot more plausible to my ears. The other thing that him and the board have been going back and forth over for the past at least month now is the issue that we've, we've seen become more of a hot button issue following the, the wake of the murder of Andres Guardado, which was the lack of body worn cameras by sheriff's deputies. They also don't have dash cams still. So the the county has been talking about how they can start expanding a pilot program to get the body-worn cameras out at more more stations. Villanueva has the authority over how that gets implemented. So he's started by saying that they're going to have five precincts or five stations where they're going to introduce the cameras to deputies, none of which is going to be the East LA station, which is notable because that is the one that is currently under investigation for sheriff's gangs and deputies mm-hmm. harassing one another and hazing, etc. A station known as Fort Apache by the sheriffs themselves. Which is probably harmless. <laughs> Probably not indicative of uh, of any deeper problems whatsoever. But yeah, so Villanueva, I just want to say, though, one of the claims that Villanueva has been making is that the $145 million reduction in their budget is not the whole story. When he went on Hannity, he said they need $3.9 billion to run the department. And so they're actually cutting over half a billion dollars from the sheriff's department budget. That's not true. The The actual case here is that every year departments put recommendations for what they would like to receive. And then the county makes a determination for what their actual appropriated level of spending is going to be. Last year, they requested... billion and got 3.5. That wasn't an $800 million cut. They just didn't get what they asked for. And the same thing was the case this year when they asked for $3.9 billion and were allotted 3.5, then reduced $150 million from there. He has been playing out the movie Falling Down over the course of really (laughs) over a year now (laughs) instead of one day. And instead of just having one gun... He commands an army of thousands of people with guns. Yeah. And it's mostly happening online. He, like you said, Scott, his replies to Mark Ridley Thomas. Here's from June 29th, a a tweet. At M. Ridley Thomas discussing credibility is always amusing. He may want to reread Sheriff McDonald's letter to him killing the body-worn camera project on February 20th, 2018. Hashtag oops. Hashtag oops. <laughs> he has is using the official at LA co sheriff 
account. Oh, and he, this was the weirdest thing. He went to a funeral, yeah. a funeral for a, a sheriff's deputy who died in 2005, mm-hmm. was shot by a someone that he was pursuing in, in Hawaiian Gardens, Deputy Jerry Ortiz. And it was the 15th anniversary of his death. Went to his grave and video of him crying about the board of supervisors defunding him and talking about lame ass politicians at a deputy's funeral. Yeah. He is like just so visibly unraveling. He goes on Instagram live like every day to complain about the board of supervisors. Meanwhile, Andres Gardado's uh, potential murder has been like his autopsy has not been released very little information about the case has been released my allow has had to be the la times reporter has had to be pulled back onto the sheriff's department b after finally getting released from it to to cover that story and uh she and aline checkmadian actually figured out the name of the the deputy who shot and killed andres gardado it's so scary it's really really terrifying to watch someone with this much power just come unglued. Yeah. I mean, there doesn't seem to be an alternative beyond recall at this point. Like he, he clearly should be not fast enough and it is not fast enough, but I, I, I do think that it's worth noting that video of Villanueva at the funeral or the, the memorial ceremony for that deceased deputy was, received and and posted by your favorite Hayes, Bill Malugan of Fox, who uh, let, I mean, absent any evidence to the contrary, it does appear that every sheriff's deputy story that this guy is getting is coming directly from Alex Villanueva, right? Yes, for sure. He says that explicitly. He says, like, not in that case, but he says, the sheriff told me this. Sheriff Villanueva tells me this. They have, uh, it appears to be a robust texting relationship. One of the many things Villanueva is just on his phone 24 seven. Yeah, he's gotta be. I mean... Yeah, I mean, it's not like there are other duties associated with being the sheriff. Well, not yeah. not right now. Not like other things are, you know, going on. Like, you know, beach closer, beach closures that you might need to. Right. I mean that that's that was another whole thing where we, the the total morass of incompetence on so many levels here has actually mm-hmm. gotten difficult to track <laughs> when you have hard the back the. Beach closures, like uh, announcing all the beaches were going to be closed for 4th of July weekend, which was uh, needlessly confusing. Also, probably not like the most impactful thing that politicians could be doing. And then you have the sheriff stepping in and saying, well, I'm just not going to enforce that at county beaches because... I don't want to, basically. He liked a a tweet from the same guy, Bill Malugan, who was saying that it was ridiculous to close beaches on a holiday meant to oppose tyranny. (laughs) There there literally are no good guys in this story. It's just such a fucking mess. Speaking of messes, institutions in upheaval, we've talked a lot in the last few weeks about what's going on at the LA Times. It's difficult at this point to even trace it back 
to the beginning. But in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests in L.A. and around the country, a lot of news organizations, New York Times, many others have experienced kind of a reckoning with both their coverage and their staffing, in particular, their staffing of black journalists uh, and the opportunities uh, provided to journalists of color in, in, in general compared to white journalists. The L.A. Times is no different following a... Uh, really long, agonizing for many people conversation on the diversity channel in their newsroom Slack. There have been multiple meetings at the LA Times that resulted in a, an all newsroom email from Norman Perlstein that uh, LA podcast leaked as its yeah. first scoop. And following that, the conversation has continued with lots of journalists, employees of the newsroom expressing uh, a lot of discontent with what has been going on at the paper. That culminated in an all-newsroom conference call that lasted almost five hours where uh, Norman Perlstein, the executive editor, gave a prepared speech, took questions from people on staff, this was covered by Vice News, a great uh, mm -hmm. article where uh, a lot of journalists spoke up earlier this week. And the, the new developments this week are Patrick Soonshong, the owner of the paper, the uh, second richest guy in Los Angeles, has released his first open letter in response to this, committing to do better. That was posted by Aaron Logan, uh, who's a journalist at the Times, at Aaron B. Logan. He cites a lot that he and his wife, Michelle, are from South Africa and being not white, suffered to some extent under apartheid there. And they understand that the scourge of racism and they want to do something about it. Put together reforms of things like the Metro program, which is designed to bring journalists of color into the paper uh, looking at compensation to make sure there are no pay disparities on the basis of race, enhancing and promoting HR career mapping resources, stuff like that. At the same time, we have started to see the first people get fired over their treatment of lower level staff. Peter Meehan, the food editor who had come over, he had run the magazine Lucky Peach in New York, hadn't actually come over, had stayed in New York to run right. the LA Times food section in the wake of, I, I think it was after, was it after Jonathan Gold's death that he took over that section? It was after um, Soon Chong bought the paper, I know. So I guess that was after yeah. Jonathan Gold died. Yeah. He had been accused of various types of harassment, inappropriate behavior with female reporters, verbal abuse, up and down the staff. And that extended to his time at Lucky Peach, apparently. Some people that worked there spoke out about it in the aftermath of his firing. And journalists like Lucas Kwan Peterson, who is a food writer, wrote one of the best things I have ever read in any context about a profile of food in New York that was a parody of how they write about food and in, in Los Angeles and New York papers. It was fantastic. And Patricia Escarga, food uh, critic there, both spoke out about treatment from uh, Peter Mian and how they had suffered for 18 months of, of abuse from him. So I, like, I can say, based on everything that has happened so far, 
the paper still has an extremely long way to go. I was able to be in and listen into that conference call from a couple weeks ago. This five-hour conference call, I snuck my way in there. I have been sort of unsure of how to talk about it without betraying anyone's confidence, but it was a really, really traumatic conversation to listen to as someone who does not work at the paper and is white. And so I cannot imagine what it is like for the people involved and hearing the emotions of like people asking questions of Norman Perlstein not reflected in his responses, by the way, he is not animated and it like does not give off the impression of being deeply affected by what's happening. Sometimes in his words, he can express that, but in his behavior, um, it is not matched with the, the, the real agony that, that is being experienced by reporters over there. They're, like the level of distrust and animosity of reporters towards upper management, not just, not just Peter Meehan, but lots of other people that run the show over there is not fixable. It, It is too late. There is, I don't think any way of just having heard this conversation, any way of repairing this relationship to be better than like, a mutual dislike in the detente, which is like not ideal for a huge paper. Yeah. I mean, well, certainly not ideal. It's, it's, it's interesting because as, so uh, a couple of different things have come out in the past couple of weeks regarding Mm -hmm. not just the, the treatment by, by editorial staff, like you were talking about, but also the paper's hiring efforts. I think, I saw through Carlina Miranda yeah. the the like actual breakdown of the who what demographics of reporters were hired over uh, over the years and you see that there's like a very minimal change and it's all happening extremely recently basically yeah you kind of wonder like for people who are coming into this situation at the times currently, as well as for people who have been there long enough to see the turbulence of all of the different managements that they have had in place there, most of which have been in one or more ways uniquely unqualified to to lead a major metropolitan newspaper. I, I, I wonder, like, how how do you proceed from here? Like how do how does the LA Times I guess get to a clean slate is is kind of my question I guess people just have to go there is real like uh, there were so many chances when Soon Chong took over they yeah. expressed a desire to right some of the wrongs in the paper's history it has a long I mean it w- existed in the first place as a way to keep Los Angeles as an anti union town. It has like rampant racism in its in its coverage over the decades, including arguably how they covered the George Floyd protest, which was another big issue yep. in the uh, conversation with with journalists between journalists and editors. And they said so it was covered in the Vice story, but uh, a reporter Esmeralda Bermudez had a conversation with Norman Perlstein when he when he showed up and he said, "I will defer to you." 
like about staffing. Like I want your help. Like I want recommendations. Like let's do this together. And she put uh, she put together a very long list and she sent it to Norman Perlstein. And two of the people on her list were interviewed. These were of uh, POC journalists. I think mostly Latinx journalists and two of those people on the list were interviewed and uh, none were hired. And this was not reported, but in their conversation about this, Norman Perlstein said that he went back and checked some of the emails that she had sent him and said that they had gone to spam. Oh my God. Yes. And there are a few things like that. Like his opening statement was comparatively like heartfelt, but then like in his response to some questions, people asked why Patrick Soon Shang had not engaged with the newsroom at all yeah. in the weeks after this like conversation first started happening. And Pearlstein said that he, Patrick Soon Shang was working very long hours trying to come up with a COVID vaccine. So sorry, he's been unable to talk to you about this because he's curing coronavirus. It's like the, the thought of giving that excuse to a newsroom, like, yeah, it's just remarkable. Like, that is not, that is the most laughable response that you could possibly give. I will say, like, when we, when we discussed, when we discussed Pearlstein's initial letter, the one that we posted on our blog to, to the staff of the Times, it was, he basically admitted that the, the way that the protests had been covered was racist because it was contingent on selling the story to white readers elsewhere as opposed to people who actually live in the city. Yeah. However, that being said, one of the things that we talked about at the time was that it was relatively short on any sort of notional next steps from from that point in time. It talked a lot about the legacy of racism within the paper, all of which is well known, and of course, all of which is not attributable directly to Pearlstein or Soon Shang. But it didn't really say much as far as what are what does the path forward for the LA Times look like in becoming something different than the legacy that it has inherited. Sounds like they're still, I mean, other than the fact that you have employees recommending you people to hire and you're not receiving those because they go to spam, it seems like there's not been much motion forward there either. And this played out with the process of finding an executive editor, which Norman Perlstein was chosen to head up and then ended up picking himself for the job. Right. As some right. people in the article described it as in the vice article described it as uh, pulling a Dick Cheney where, <laughs> and he said, I heard him say in this conversation that he went to a lot of people who refused the job, but then the vice reporters talked to people that were on the list of people that were being considered. And they said that they were never offered the job and they oh would god. have taken it. Oh my god! Wow. So that appears to have been effectively a lie. I mean, enough people on this call were asking very abruptly if Norman Perlstein was planning on retiring soon yeah. to which he said no, that it just doesn't feel like a salvageable relationship for the health of right. the paper. It's, I mean that I think it's time to like mistakes were made. This extends to a few. It reminds me actually of another thing from this week that I was really shocked to read 
Ara Bogato, who now is a reporter up in the Bay Area for Reveal, but formerly uh, wrote stories for LAist uh, of great uh, consequence locally. She put it. Did uh, did you all see the the list of texts? Michael, yeah. the chief yeah. of police, Michael Moore's text yeah. that she that she got. She filed a request and got all the texts sent to chief of police Michael Moore during one of the police commission hearings, in where everyone was yelling at him and telling him to go fuck himself and to retire, bitch, and all these other things. And I want to read one of those texts that there's a huge amount that is shocking in these texts that just go, it's at Arabagato, go to her, her, her Twitter feed. It's a lot of people expressing sympathy. Other people who are in the police commission meeting with chief Michael Moore, who are appointed to have some authority over him telling him that they are so sorry for what's happening to him. Steve Soberoff, president of the police commission speculates that the, the the people calling in are financed and coordinated right paid protesters basically like uh, doesn't say like george soros doesn't say soros it's, <laughs> it's that kind of thing people like texting him just michael just so you know like you are not racist i know that you're not but michael moore responded to one of these texts mostly he just says thanks for your support yes like we're you know we're getting through it. It's going to be open session for another five hours or whatever. But to one person, he responds to Steve Soberoff writes him, no statement on anything by any of us would change any of the words of these speakers. So sad, so mean, so angry. So that's Steve Soberoff saying like, there's nothing. Why even try to do anything? Because nothing we could do uh, would change any of their minds. And Michael Moore responds, we must listen and remain resolved. If there become if there becomes a greater voice, I could see the need to change the top. Not aware of an incident of civil unrest to this degree in which the top elected officials, and for that matter, the cop, aren't needed to exit to reset. That's from the chief of police. Hmm. Yep. Accurately, I think, sizing up the situation. It does take a change of who is in command in a lot of cases to, 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 to reset on these things. Moneyball. <laughs> he's, cr- he's crunched the numbers. <laughs> I, the data guy. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that totally does apply to the LA times as well with, you know, with, with the way that the LA times is saying that it would like to change in order to remain relevant. I, I, I don't see it, it. That's been applied to the journalists themselves so many different times in so many different directions of them being told at, at a certain point to basically like get ready to start putting out listicles to the, the modern day, like uh, for lack of a, a better phrase, back to basics sort of approach of Sun Shang. They've been told repeatedly, you guys need to be different and consider your jobs differently than you did before. And each time that has meant something different. And that same uh, scrutiny does not seem like it ever gets applied to the upper levels of management. So with all of the sort of cascading failures that Pearlstein laid out, 
and the lack of ability by management to, I think, come up with anything that satisfactorily resolves those in the eyes of the the actual newsroom, it is hard to see a situation where that remains uh, a tenuous management labor relationship for more than uh, the short term. Especially because on that call... There were a lot of people, again, very emotionally communicating that they had reported abuse to Norman Perlstein specifically and to HR, had done what they were supposed to do, and nothing had happened. And he responded very sharply in some cases, like, you don't know what happened. And like your definition of leadership is not the same as like, if you think that's like what I did was wrong. Like we, I did stuff that you weren't aware of right and people responded well this person is still in charge and still doing the same things mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. what i mean like what happened and then it took this stuff being made public to lead to uh peter me i don't even know if that's who they were talking about because they didn't mm. say names on the call mm. so it could have it was even like been a, someone and else. that was two two weeks ago by the way i don't know if we we talked about the timeline of when that call was it yeah was, that call was two weeks, was ago, two weeks ago and it yeah. it was only when other people i think new york based people started to speak up about this that he actually lost his job mm. mm-hmm. and that suggested he would not have had it not become public even after journalists were saying this person has been abusing us and again i don't even know if this is is who it was yeah it's it's re, it's too it's just too reactive they're just too it's too late over there unfortunately yeah, and but I, they, I, yeah. I mean there is so so when soon chong first started there was a lot of hiring journalists were, were rightly very excited about that but i think one of one of maybe the warning signs if we're talking about Los Angeles Times attempting to chase after suburban readers or national readership base and not really being concerned with the poor performance of the fundamental readership base here in Los Angeles. Hayes, at the time, you talked at length about the decision to to, to basically get rid of the local news or consolidated it with a much broader version of that section. There were a lot of hires made at the time, too, that were intended on shoring up the the coverage of the paper overseas, specifically in Asia, with the like with the intention that that was an area of the world where the L.A. Times could compete with the coverage of the New York Times. Meanwhile, I mean, I, I just I feel like Sun Shang, obviously, this was a, a trophy investment for him. But it is, you know, it's weird when you have a paper representing really almost alone representing uh, a region of how many people? 20 million. When you talk about like Southern California as a whole, mm-hmm. it's so strange to just see the sort of like the dismissal of the people who live in LA as like a a source of enough news to like fill up a a major American paper. I would love to see that change. Who knows if we ever will, but that, that does stick out more to me, I think, given what we're seeing in terms of the demographics of the newsroom and what stories are getting covered and what they look like when they do get covered. Especially given 
just the the talent they have amassed for local coverage. I mean, they deserve credit for that, I guess. And in in particular, like the the black and POC reporters that they have hired there are saving the paper despite themselves. Like it, there's extraordinary talent they they don't appear to necessarily know how to utilize yet but they have hired really amazing well yeah and people. i think and and what some of the reporters had been talking about too is how many had been hired and it's it still hadn't moved the needle overall right. because it was such a white newsroom you know previously mm-hmm. so it's it's really there is some credit to be to be given for how much they have really brought on really important voices over the fat past few years who are not white. And that's, that's really, it's, it's starting to happen, you know, but it's like you said, this is the, the thing that is going to have to happen across media is the people have to get out of the way who have been there for a long time or who have, who are abusing their power in some situations too. But that, that's the reckoning that, Hiring doesn't fix that unless you get the people to get out of the way. Nobody's owed these jobs. Like you got to do them right to to keep them, you know. Let's talk about the police budget, the pro- the process of defunding the police. There was a big council meeting this week, one of the last. They're going on break for for a month. They've earned it. <laughs> Where the LAPD got a little bit defunded. What happened there, Scott? Yeah. Um, so what city council did, this is the the proposal that they have been talking about for, I guess, since the week following the largest uproar about defunding the police, the famous I yield my time meeting, etc. City council came back and said, we want to investigate what it would look like to not have police go out on nonviolent calls and then sort of concomitant with that, they had a proposal to reduce the LAPD budget by $150 million. That eventually ended up passing. It is, there is some, I would say, budget trickery in this. Mm -hmm. First of all, (laughs) the, the thing that needs to be understood about budgets in general is that the budget is what the city is projecting their spend will be over the course of the year to come. Now, the actual amount that they spend can be more or less than that. It does potentially uh, create problems if it exceeds the appropriated budget, but it's not unheard of, especially in uh, in an area that we've been talking about a lot lately, which is police overtime. So mm-hmm. a lot of what came out of the police budget was in this category, a reduction in what Hayes, you had reported was an unprecedented high high allocation to overtime spending on the police. 97 million, so two-thirds of the the reduction that we're we're seeing going into the new budget year comes out of that. I think it was originally a $200 million mm-hmm. budget for overtime for police. There aren't checks on this. There really are no. not like checks on how much overtime the police can take. We actually have already heard that 
in the final, let's say, month of budget year of the the budget year that just ended at the end of June, the police racked up millions, tens of millions of dollars in overtime. I think $40 million about total in overtime. Right. So almost half of what they quote unquote cut from the upcoming year, they did that in a month. And that's not like they're not going to get paid for that. It's they're not going to get paid for it currently. They might hang right. on to that in terms of... So an individual police officer, let's say they work 10 hours of overtime and that isn't something that the department can pay for at that time. They instead get uh, days. They get time off. And of course, the way that that works under state law is if you don't take it, then you can it continues to basically just appreciate in value until you retire or quit or are fired. It is it is considered wages that you have already earned, which generally speaking, I'm in favor of. But in this case, for the police that just it continues to grow and grow in value until they leave the department and then they get paid out. So is this a $150 million, million dollar cut or defunding of the police? Not really. The overtime issue is, is a real one. This is like a, this is, it's as close to a black box as there is in, in city government where the, the police are expected to or allowed to rather just fill up overtime and it will get paid to them eventually. Yeah, that money is getting it's not a cut by any in any sense. That money will eventually be be given to officers, just not this year potentially. It's like a little bit of a of a delay, but it's not a cut. It does like the the other 50 million uh, is the result of uh a few like a slightly smaller force next year it's the number of officers is falling below 10,000 for the first time in a, in a in a decade or so to like 9750 or something like that which caused a lot of pearl clutching in local media as if this 10,000 number meant anything at all beyond just being like a totally arbitrary number that politicians came up with so they could run on saying like 10,000 officers yeah yeah 10,000 is a totally Arbitrary number, unlike uh, 14,188, there is no meaning <laughs> associated with the number 10,000. And I will say that I, I my, my, we reaction, should explain that yeah, so you're not just you mentioning that just number and, that and we're all that. laughing at it and just moving on <laughs> if you don't mind. Yeah, Hayes, sure. Hayes okay. Got, yeah. Hayes, Hayes please take it away. I was looking at, I was trying to find a picture of a of an LAPD badge for something. I don't even remember what. And I saw there, the LAPD had a page on their website with the like a history of the LAPD and the picture of the badge showing what different things meant. And the number, the sample number on the badge was 14188, which for everyone who's listening to this probably knows, 1488 means that the 14 words, which is a white supremacist slogan uh, and 88 H is the eighth letter of the al- alphabet. It's short for how Hitler it's like a, it's a signaling for white supremacists to eat uh, to each other. Uh, and it's often stylized with the slash in the middle, which the one in the middle could conceivably be serving as. I actually thought more people would be like, you're insane for even pointing this out. Like you're seeing 
things where like where they don't exist. But people were very upset by it. And now the page has been deleted entirely. And you found I I guessed that it had been up for a long time just because nothing on the LAPD website has been made date for over a decade. But you found, Scott, that it's been on the Internet Archive since at least 2006. Yeah, that that specific page with the exact same image and the same sample badge number goes back to at least January 2006. Can delete the page, but you can't delete the Wayback Machine, unfortunately. They're to trying the, uh, to do that. Not the LAPD, but others are trying to do that. But it is... I, I what, what I think is really compelling about that is this was before... In you know, in the the period of time before uh, Twitter, before Charlottesville, yeah. before Trump was the president, there was a point in time where the fourteen eighty eight that was a lot more like winky at the time. It was an right? actual dog whistle. Yeah, it was like it was much more of like a neo Nazi subcultural yeah. thing, and it was <laughs> now a lot- it's kind of now it's an air horn. It's like it's actually almost it's almost kind of sweet to remember a point in time where where neo Nazi (laughs) culture was a was a fringe was a fringe movement. (laughs) So yeah, so that's been up since two thousand and six. A point in time where I think it would clearly have been. I mean, uh, unless it's a situation where you had like a rogue webmaster who like I don't know was doing like a. You know that Vin Diesel movie Triple X with like the anarchists. Yeah, <laughs> it seems like it could be so <laughs> the anyway, long play, a very finally, long play. Somebody to finally get that page deleted has <laughs> finally <laughs> somebody noticed. Anyway, yeah, that that is an entire mess that seems like it was probably not probably. I think I think that's definitely something that was done deliberately at the point in time when it was put up. Which, as we all know, two thousand six was definitionally. The, the bad old LAPD. So who knows what they would do. Back to the budget, though. So this is, uh, again, we, we talked about a, a similar amount of, of funding being cut from the sheriffs, $145 million there, $150 million for for LAPD. Villanueva, of course, for the sheriff's department, said that he, he was outraged. He wrote defunded in all caps on his mm-hmm. Twitter but this is not this is not defunding and city council of course knows this as we talked about a few weeks ago the police protective league has been in behind the scenes saying yeah we're totally fine with this of course of course they are they are and happy we, to get away with this amount of fake cuts they would love it they would they would be thrilled so city council despite you know whatever despite whatever it may look like they are still not taking meaningful action on reforming the police and and of course as we've mentioned the actual meat of their proposal to change the way that police are deployed to nonviolent calls is something that we might anticipate not to even be able to see for a while, a year or more. Yeah. yeah. So but at the, to give them a little credit this week, uh, they did advance another possible change along those lines. Like what will actually lead to the shrinking of the police department is changing their responsibilities. 
and what they're sort of allowed to just like how busy it's possible for them to be like out in the city, how much they're allowed to do. And council members Marquise Harris Dawson and Mike Bonin, joined by council members Curran Price and Herb Wesson, filed a motion to study as these things always begin removing police from doing these traffic stops where they basically, they see a broken taillight. They see someone, you know, making a, like a weird turn or something. They pull them over. They they, often ends up in a search can be an arrest for drugs or something like that. Marquise Harris Dawson in, in talking about this, said that he uh, he's one of the three uh, black members of the city council. He said that he'd had a gun pointed at him five times and four of them were by police. And I think as we are learning in the last few weeks and uh, today, even more in an article uh, by the LA times, these traffic stops are where police really get their stats. If you want to manufacture an arrest out of nowhere, because you want to book some overtime because you want to make a quota for arrests, there have been a lot of reports uh, that the, the LA Times also came up with about the LAPD enforcing, basically driving while black. It's like many more, like a very disproportionate number of black drivers are pulled over. This would cut into their activity by a lot. Like if you if you took them off of just like driving around, just pulling people over, there's just way, way less for LAPD to do. Alyssa, do you want to talk? There's other defunding related stuff to talk about. Yeah, we had week. some other cool, just an update from uh, some other cool things that happened with other institutions that have a lot of policing on them. The school board, LAUSD school board had this marathon meeting, went well into, I mean, it's 10 hours long. It was really long, right? Uh-huh. There was 13, 13 hours. hours. Yeah, I lost track of time. I fell asleep, woke back up. It was still going. But it was, <laughs> there was some tears. There was some screaming. It was a lot of drama. But in the end, they did vote to reduce the budget by 35%. So eliminate $25 million from the school policing budget. And then the school police chief promptly quit because he was so upset that they would yep. uh, dare do Seppuku. this. Seppuku. And then we also had an effort to eliminate LAPD at libraries. This is another um, huge cost and and deployment that you just don't really think about in the city. You, you think about police being on Metro probably, but not at the library. So this is a $10 million contract that a group of librarians have gotten together to, to defund. And if you go to tinyurl.com, forward slash safe LAPL. You can see this open letter. The library commissioner has actually canceled the meeting that was supposed to happen this week, but they're going to have it in a few weeks where uh, they'll be discussing this. But I think this is really like a place where you should absolutely not have police in the libraries. I mean, that seems like a pretty much given. And there's some, what's, what some of the librarians have said is that they were they felt like, you know, the libraries are places where people who are unhoused use to go to use a computer or the bathrooms. In some cases, the library is, is very supportive of those needs and, you know, knows mm-hmm. that it's there as a public service. And a lot of these librarians have talked about how they don't feel like they, they feel like the safety of their patrons are in in danger because of the police presence in the libraries. So I think it's a another like no brainer situation where we should definitely be getting the police out of the libraries. It's one of those things I saw people um, internationally 
posting uh, with the stories that were coming out this week. Like you in America, you have police in your school. Just like what? A full separate department. Right. Yeah. Just for the school district. Just standing in the school. Yeah. But I do want to point again, the way these votes have broken down, it was a four, three vote to cut that 25 million from the the school police. And it was, you know, we have talked many times in the past about there's the charter wing of the school oh, board right, and yeah. the and, and the union wing. Right. And this was a big, the teachers union was very, very, doing a very hard push to defund the school yes. police. But it was the, the entire, quote, charter wing that voted to defund. Right. Along with Jackie Goldberg, one member of the union wing it just didn't break out the way you would expect it based on those yes affiliations at all maybe more meaningful that the three votes to maintain the police budget were old men all three retired principals and also old guys yeah it was, that was the demographic breakdown <laughs> that i saw it was like are yeah you're right are you a former principal in right. the in in la usd and also, are you a man over the age of 70? <laughs> yeah. Because the principal's union is against it. Not the teacher's union. The teacher's union is for the defunding. The principal's is union for. is against defunding. So maybe they were. Yes. They have allegiances to the principal's union. This, this was a, it really was a landmark event, the, the school board vote. It was, when you when you think about it, so in the context of the larger police economy in, in Los Angeles, the school police are one of the larger ones, even though the budget is completely dwarfed by by entities like LAPD and LA Sheriff's Department, the the school police department is actually quite large. Mm-hmm. So the chief, Todd Chamberlain, who did retire the, the following day, he was making the case that, as I think anybody who is in support of the effort to defund the police and get police out of schools, he was making the point that the 35% cut would change the school police department so dramatically as to make it unrecognizable. So I was listening to that and I was like, this is great. Richard Vladovic, the, the president of the school board was saying that this was effectively disbanding the police. The, so the motion just so that we, we get it all. It was, an immediate cut of $25 million from the, from the annual budget. It was stipulating that officers would not be allowed to be like stationed on campuses during just like during the course of the day, they would be of course able to respond to calls on campus, but wouldn't be just patrolling within the, within the, the school grounds they would not be in uniform. Jackie's khakis. Jackie got her Jackie's khakis. khakis. Jackie Goldberg got her khakis uh, claws in there. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I think we could call them that. Like the, the police force will just be called Jackie's khakis and they'll be like, they're just helping. <laughs> Another <laughs> mass retirement. The, the $25 million is uh, going to be redirected to counseling and nursing services, which is something that nursing and counseling, these were big asks that Dude. the that UTLA had during the strike. And they were told there's no money for it. 
And that was part of what uh, led to the strike being extended as long as it was. It wasn't teacher salaries or anything like that. It was getting more or was lowering the student to nurse ratio and the student to counselor ratio. So UTLA has seized on this moment. Their membership and the, the executives there have seized on this moment to say, we want the school police defunded. We want this funding to go back into our schools. And they have, to a certain degree, accomplished that. The, the, what you're saying, the breakdown between charter and union-backed reps is an interesting one because we, we saw a lot of commentary directed by the union-backed reps, folks like Scott Schmerelson and, and Richard Vladovic, who were saying... They didn't understand why why one union, that is the teachers union, would choose to attack another union, the school police union. Uh-huh. And that was that was seemingly a large part of the the basis for their opposition, aside from the 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 complete scaremongering of of saying that in the absence of school police, school shootings will definitely occur on every campus in in the LA area. It it's a huge success. And I think that that's really the takeaway. This is the biggest victory at this point in time in LA by far for the defund movement. But it's not over at the city level. And there was some reporting today, Alyssa, showing exactly how police do spend their time that kind of feeds into this whole discussion that we're having. Yeah, there was an LA Times story out today that looked at the data for 911 calls and there was also a really great um, Crosstown story a few weeks ago, which I thought had the best headline ever. What do police actually do? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which really looked at some a lot of the same a lot of the same data and how what they're responding to um, when it comes to those calls. And not surprisingly, most of the things that they are responding to are things like parties, loud parties is, is more frequent than any type of activity that could be considered a violent crime. So, but the largest percentage, and I think this is, you know, what we were talking about before, are these officer officers making decisions to stop someone, whether they're in their car or they're walking or they're driving down the street and see something going on, those that makes up the majority of, of what's actually happening. So it's it's not really people who are calling 911 and in trouble, and yet the police are still coming out there. And it's it's notable that, you know, when this was, you know, the, the suggestion that people who were not police officers could be responding to these calls, you know, when, when that was put out there, I don't even know if they, they, they asked at the at council to have a report back on what those calls, you know, were. And it seems pretty obvious that that police do not need to be deployed to uh, a vast majority of these, but that they're actually, they are the ones themselves who are choosing to um, approach people in other situations. And that goes back to that traffic stop thing you were talking about before, like why we don't need police to be doing those things. It's, I mean, the only reason you would need them to do it is if you wanted to basically create a job subsidy program for thousands of people that get paid like a, a huge amount of money. I mean, it's make work. Interesting. If you design that that process, like you imagine any other job, if you like make hamburgers and your boss said, okay, these people will be like, when the order comes in, they'll make a hamburger. 
and you walk around outside and look under rocks and see if there are any hamburgers under there. That and like and then just like and make sure you look under as many as possible because yeah. there might be and you get paid and you, and you get paid you get paid as the <laughs> same amount. <laughs> that other uh, and right. so that you know that feeds into the what council members Bonin and Harris Dawson and Price and Weston are talking about. I mean that's half. That's half of the like call the situations that they get into yeah. are the flashlight tap on the window thing that has resulted in uh, death and trauma for so many people. So that would make a huge difference. And it's something that we will follow when the city council gets back from their vacation in the month. That is all we have time for today. I think thank you so much for listening to LA podcast. Thank you, Brian Holmes for producing the show. Uh, thank you for subscribing to our LA podcast, Patreon. We had a really fun conversation with LA's favorite seismologist, Dr. Lucy Jones, that went up last Friday. She said what her favorite earthquake was, and we all said ours, and you get to think of what your favorite earthquake is. That was a blast. So subscribe, listen to that, and we will be back next week on LA Podcast. Bye. Bye.